Now when the high priests and those who were with him arrived, they summoned the Sanhedrin, that is, the whole high council of the Israelites, and sent to the jail to have the apostles brought before them. This is how cloak and dagger and stealthy ninja God was, that they don't even know that they've been freed yet. But the officers who came for them did not find them in the prisons, so they returned and reported, We found the jail locked securely and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. So they were basically supernaturally like slipped out through the walls, through the bars or whatever without anybody even knowing. We found no one inside. Now when the commander of the temple of guard and the chief priests heard this report, they were greatly puzzled concerning it, wondering what this could be. But someone came and reported to them, Look, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple courts and teaching the people. Then the commander of the temple guard went with the officers and brought the apostles without with the officers and brought the apostles without the use of force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Once again they're going to arrest them, but now they're afraid of the people, which is a typical thing, and but yet Peter willingly goes with them. If they're coming along without being forced to, then that says that they've willingly done it. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intended to bring this man's blood on us. Don't you think that the first question in their mouth would be like, How in the world did you get out? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, right? Holy crap, I'm really scared of you. That takes a lot of power to overcome soldiers and get out of a prison, especially when the prison doors are still locked. I mean, this is better than Houdini, because we'd locked you up. But Peter and the apostles, verse 29, said, We must obey God rather than people. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you seized and killed by hanging him on the tree. There you go, Peter, again, going straight for the throat again. Every time Peter has an opportunity to talk, he's like, You killed him. You killed him. Now remember, this isn't like angry, vengeful, I can't get, it's not like your crazy neighbor's like, you did this, I'm going to get you, okay? This is, you need to repent. You need to really understand what you have done, what you've been responsible for, that you are truly guilty, and that only repentance is going to save you. It's harsh, it's in the face, it's unapologetic and not sugar-coated in any kind of way, but it's not done with revenge or malice or desire to inflict or hurt pain. It is done with the hope of convicting and changing so that they may repent and come to God. God exalted him to his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these events. And so the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Now notice the heart of the message here is that you killed him, but God exalted him. What you sent all of your power against to destroy, and you even buried him into the ground, God overdid with the resurrection. God exalted. God empowered. And the implication here is, and now here you are still throwing all your power at God to stop him. And if you couldn't stop him when he was literally in the flesh before you, raising himself from the grave, then how are you going to stop him now when he's fully resurrected 
and empowering the church. There's nothing you can do. And that's what we must remember. If, they, if the world can't stop God when they've killed him and buried him, then how are they going to stop him when he's fully resurrected? And that's the main point here. This is what Peter is holding on to. He saw it with his own eyes. The empty tomb, the angels, the resurrected Christ. And what he's thinking is, that's going to empower you. A lot of times we wonder, like, if only I could be as courageous as them. If only, like, do I have it in me to walk right up into the face of a government who is going to kill me if I do not stop and still do it? The more that you encounter the real resurrected Christ, the greater the confidence you're going to have. It has nothing really to do with the fact that Peter was there and we're not. It has everything to do with how much you have encountered Christ. How much you've encountered him. How much you've, you've seen him and interacted with him. And this is what's driving him. This is what's feeling them. This is what's given them boldness and confidence to resist this temptation. Now, don't get me wrong. I am very, very, very confident as a human who knows lots of other humans and has spent a lot of my life studying humans and psychology and talking to a lot of humans about life that Peter is still probably scared and still very anxious. There are probably different, definitely times of angst in his life. And there, there's going to be moments where he's going to feel defeated. There's going to be moments where he's going to be scared. I'm not saying that there's no emotions of fear. There's no emotions of, of, of angst or anxiety or wondering. Or, 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 but despite that, it's not stopping him. It's not stopping him. And if it slows him down at different times of his life, because we all have seasons, it's not stopping him. And it's not forever. That's the one thing that's always made me wonder about the Bible. The Bible never, ever takes us into the minds and the emotions and the motivations of the people. There's only one time in the entire Bible that we're really taken into the inter, inner dialogue of a person. And we're told what they're feeling and thinking and what's driving them. And that's Haman, who is the absolute enemy of God during the book of Esther, who's trying to wipe them all out. You know, like of all the people <laughs> to take us into their inner drive and motivations and... They chose him. And it, sometimes it would be one, it'd be good to just know, what were these people really feeling? What was Abraham feeling? Okay, what was, what was really Peter going through? What was he wrestling through? We're told by Polycarp. Polycarp it becomes a high church leader of Smyrna. Polycarp was the disciple of John, the disciple of Jesus, the one who wrote the Gospel of John, and first and second and third John, and wrote the Revelation. He was a disciple of Jesus, and he discipled Polycarp. And Polycarp was his disciple. And Polycarp became the pastor, the head pastor of Smyrna, one of the churches of Revelation. And Polycarp said that at the end of his life, John saw the spread of the Gnosticism, that Christian cult. And it had become so powerful in the Roman Empire and across the, 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 the Middle East here that he himself feared that it would overpower, strangle, and snuff out Christianity, and Christianity would completely die out and be gone. And that everything that he'd ever accomplished, and everything the disciples accomplished, and Christ accomplished, would be gone forever. Here's John, who's getting arrested, and then going out and preaching the gospel again, and then saying, no, we will not stop preaching. 
and no matter what gets hit at him, still has his moments, according to Polycarp. And, and Polycarp, from what we can tell, is one of the most trusted ancient early church fathers. When we read his writings, they're just, they're just validated in so many ways. They did have their moments, but it didn't stop them. It didn't overcome them. Now, verse 33, when they heard this, they became furious and wanted to execute them. But a Pharisee whose name was Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was respected by all the people, stood up in the council and ordered the men to be put outside for a short time. Gamaliel was the head of the Pharisees. He was one of the most, he was the most respected Pharisees at this time period. His name shows up many, many, many documents outside the Bible consistently. He is considered one of the most intelligent, the most well-versed in the Bible, the Talmud, the Mishnah, other writings of the Pharisees about the Bible. He is highly respected. He had carried a considerable amount of power. And he was one of the men directly responsible for training and discipling Paul, originally Saul, to become a powerful Pharisee. And so Paul literally was discipled by one of the most respected, most intelligent, well-versed, powerful Pharisees that there was to give you an idea of what Paul was leaving behind, um, basically becoming the president or the leader of the entire Pharisaic party if he hadn't converted to Christianity. And so he gave up a lot. He is respected, and he stood up, and he ordered the council to step outside. Then he said to the council, outside the ears of Peter and John and all of them, Men of Israel, pay close attention to what you are about to do to these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. About 400 men joined him, and he was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed, and nothing came of it. After him, Judas the Galilean arose in the days of the census, and incited people to follow him in revolt. And he too was killed, and all who followed him were scattered. So in this case... I say to you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. Because if this plan or this undertaking originates with people, it will come to nothing. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop them, or you may even be found fighting against God. That's incredible wisdom. Gamaliel never converted to Christianity that we know of. There's never any sense that he was against what Paul was doing in killing the Christians. There, there's no record of this in any kind of way. In fact, we know after this incident, there are many cases where he stuck to Judaism and he, he didn't accept Christ. Whether he did it way, way later, well, this is actually pretty late in his life right now. Um, but whether he did it in his life, I, we don't know or not. But at least within a few years after this, there's evidence that he still remained with Judaism and still remained the leader of the Pharisees. Yet, there's wisdom here. And what he's basically coming to them like, don't waste your time with this. The implication kind of is if you kill them, you're just going to, to, to rile up the crowd even more. And you're going, to, you're, you're going to create a flood of chaos and rebellion among the crowd for killing them and making them martyrs. Because if you just leave this alone, and this is really just something that people have made up and concocted and they're doing through their own energy and power, this man who has been around for a long time and witness a lot of events, has seen that it will just eventually fizzle out. The people only have so much energy 
to invest in radical causes that do not produce immediate fruit, right? I mean, if you're going to give up part of your life trying to survive, cook, make meals, clean house, take care of kids, okay, work, all that kind of stuff. If you're going to follow a radical revolution that you believe is going to overthrow the government and change things and make better for you, you're going to give up your life. And it's going to be hard to survive and do things. But you're doing it because you believe that this movement will change it for you. And if it doesn't change the year and the next year and the next year, eventually you're going to say, this isn't worth it. I've already lost so much of trying to keep my family going. And this isn't changing things for the better. And eventually people fizzle out and leave you because you're not producing the results. And so he says, just let it fizzle out. Let it die. Don't make them angry and want revenge. Just let them get bored and disheartened. However, if this is truly from God, then it's not going to fizzle out. But there's no way you're going to stop it. There's no way you're going to stop it. And not only is this incredible wisdom, yet God is using the wisdom in order to protect his people. And we need to understand even if the world does not have God, and there's a lot of evil in the world, it does not mean that the world was without wisdom. And it doesn't mean that there's not people out there still trying to do the right thing in the right way. And it also doesn't change the fact that God can use the wisdom of the world to do things and to change you and convict you. I have very, very distinct memories of like really struggling with something in my life or something happening. And then just watching a movie, like something like Indiana Jones or whatever, just, just a Hollywood movie. And then like one of the main characters in the movie says something. And that line comes out of that movie in a way that no other line does. And it just hits me. And it's like, oh, that was so God. And it was either very encouraging or very convicting. And I knew, like, there's no reason for that line. The director did not design that scene for that line to pop out like that yet it did and god can use anything god can use anything songs that come on the radio just at the right moment and words that just begin to speak to you people who just randomly say things to you and you're like what why did you say that oh it just feels so powerful there is wisdom that god can use from any location and he does this to protect them and he uses gamaliel so they summoned the apostles and had them beaten. Well, we won't kill them, but we still need to get a good lick in it. Okay? They're being beaten with what's called the lictor's rod. Okay? The lictor's rod. The lictor's rod is just a rod that they would just beat them a few times on the back or the thighs or something like that. Now, don't get me wrong. It would hurt. Okay? And they would go home like with a limp, and they would be sore for multiple days, and it would be just enough pain to kind of encourage you not to do it again is not a flogging. People very rarely come back from a flogging. It's not a flogging. So when Paul says that I was beaten multiple times, he means the lictor's rod. He means the lictor's rod. He will be threatened with a flogging later. And that's when he's like, I'm a Roman citizen. Okay? <laughs> because you can take a lictor's rod. And if you're really truly committed, you'll say that pain's not any big deal. But you don't take a flogging really come back from that in any kind of real way. If you do survive, you're going to be a cripple for the rest of your life. This is the lictor's rod that beaten them. And then they ordered them. If we can't kill you and we're not going to arrest you because of Gamaliel's advice, we're at least maybe can inflict enough pain in you that you won't want to come back. 
and we're not going to flog you because that's the same thing as killing them and that contrary to Gamaliel's advice. And so they ordered them once again, now don't speak about Jesus. So they left the council rejoicing because they had been considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. And every day, both in the temple courts and in front of the house to house, and from house to house, they did not stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus was the Christ. And remember, Christ is the King. The King. This is one of the phrases that I just cannot relate to. They walked away rejoicing that they had been beaten and suffered with Christ. Everything American me says, no. I, I might be thankful that I did not deny Christ as I was being beaten and suffering. I may thank Christ for what he, I know that sometime later he's going to use that for my good, like refining gold. But I may not say, yay, I was beaten. And I don't think that's really what's going on. Maybe it has more to do, but a little bit of it is. A little bit is the idea that we are suffering like Christ suffered. That we have gone through what Christ has gone through. And most likely probably it is that there's probably a sense those who have suffered, and I know everybody in this room has suffered in one case or another in different ways. There is something about coming out the other side. And maybe this is what it is and this is what I can relate to. But there is something about coming out through the other side that you're like, I don't think there's any way I could have gotten through that if it hadn't been for Christ. I, I can't see any fruit that would have come out of that if it hadn't been for Christ. And there is a certain sense that like, now that I've gone through the suffering and it's far enough of the past, maybe I don't see everything that God has done with it and everything that he's going to do with it. But I at least have enough hindsight to know, one, there's no way I could have gotten through that without Christ. Even if there were times that I doubted him or wondered, why are you doing this? This isn't supposed to happen to me. Whatever those thoughts are going ahead. In the end, I know Christ is there and he got me through. And more importantly than that, it changed me into something else. It made me better. It deepened my understanding of God or it brought me closer. And then perhaps in just this moment, there's a sense of, what is it like to be beaten when you're just being beaten for being bad versus what it's like to be physically beaten because you're doing the thing of God and God is with you in the beating, somehow comforting and taking care of you. And maybe that's a little bit what the rejoicing is. And there's probably more to it and deeper, but maybe that's a little bit of what it is. It's not just that I'm suffering because I was a horrible, evil person, right? I mean, this is what Peter says, or it's James. What good is it to you? If you suffer for doing evil, so what? But if you suffer for doing for God, then that is to be commended. And there's something about God coming in and taking care of them. There's also another thought of me. Some people are like, I can't wait till Christ comes back. And he's going to take us out of this crappy world of suffering. And please, Jesus, come now, right? Things are getting worse. Come now. And I don't mean this in a bad, non-Christian, anti-Jesus way. But there's a part of me that says, I don't want Christ to come back. And I don't, don't stop listening or clip me out and take me out of context right now. There's a lot of people on YouTube who love to do that with people. Okay? What I mean is, there's a part of me, I, I, there's a really deep part of me who 
doesn't really want Christ to come back until I at least make it into my 80s, right? Because I want to know, do I have it to persevere? Like, and I don't mean like I have it in my own strength. I know I don't. But I just want to know, like when Paul says, I ran the race and I persevered to the end. And, and, and Jesus and James and Peter and the author of Hebrews says, the mark of the true believer is perseverance. Not the one that had the perfect mile every single mile of the cross-country race. Not the one who never got distracted and kind of wandered off the path for a while then came back. Not the one who says, I'm done and I'm just going to sit in the fields in the poppy fields and get a little high for a while and then come back. He says, the one who perseveres at the end. And there's a part of me who just wants to know, do I love God and am I committed enough that I'm going to persevere to the end? I want to know. And I feel like if Christ comes back, and yeah, he'll probably tell me, yes, I was, or no, I won't, but that's not the same as experiencing, right? God could have said, I know you're going to sacrifice your son, Abraham, so what's the point? I'm going to save you from that emotional angst and anxiety of almost killing your kid and wondering if God was going to be there. You did it. Congratulations, because I know all. But that's not the same. Friendships and relationships are built on mutual shared experiences. And if Christ experienced it because he knows all things, but Abraham doesn't, they don't have a common shared experience. And therefore, there's no deep relationship. And there's a part of me who wants to know, do I have to do what it takes? And I want to say there's a sense of like, yes, I held on to God even when there was suffering. And I saw God deeper in the suffering. I have more confidence in God because I've experienced him in a deeper way. And I can go off and do it again. And I don't know exactly what that phrase means completely, but these are my guesses. Just as I get older and older, um, and I know you're kind of looking at me like, what? Um, but as I get older and older, and I begin to realize more of life, is like maybe these are just a little bit of the ideas of what's going on here when they rejoiced in their suffering. When they rejoiced in their suffering. Especially Peter denied him at one time because he didn't want to. It's like, yeah, I did it, and I and I came through. I, I can trust in you, and I'm, my faith is building. I mean, that's just such a dichotomy of where he was and where he is here. That's a great insight too. Like, I know this is a very minor level, but I failed my first year of Hebrew in seminary. Okay, foreign languages just do not work well with my brain. And, and there was a, something about going through it a second time and being like, yes, I passed. I can do it, right? When you fail, that really goes against your self-esteem. That really is demoralizing in a lot of ways. And so there's a sense there, too. And I know that many of you have lots of experiences beyond me and in different ways. And, and if you have other insights, I would love to hear them at another time of what it means to rejoice in suffering. Um, but those are just the things that I've come to and come to realize in life. And they continue to proclaim the gospel. How could you not see God in all that? The minute you get arrested and you're being dragged into prisons, everything in human you says, this is over. They haven't experienced a miraculous escape from prison yet. They haven't seen the angels come anyway. They've seen Christ escape the grave. They know Christ can do it. But like in the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we know that God is capable, but even if not, we still will follow him. They know that there are many stories where people didn't get saved by God. And now they've been saved on multiple occasions just in this one day. 
And if that invigorates you even more, if that doesn't, I don't know what does. If that doesn't invigorate you even more, I don't know what does.